History Reread, November 2021. The Futurist Manifesto. You are very welcome to this podcast, History Reread. On the first Monday of every month, I present a commentary on a famous text from history. Something familiar that many of you will already have read, while others, myself included, might feel it to be something we should have read, or must have read, but can't remember doing so. Over the other Mondays of the month, I am relating that text, audio book style, either in full or abridged form. This month it is The Futurist Manifesto by Filippo Tommaso Marinetti, which appeared in the Paris newspaper Figaro on February the 20th, 1909. And the reread is prompted by the following headline and story. Italian Futurists Rome Apartment, A Total Fusion of Art and Life by Thea Howlin taken from the Art Newspaper, online on the 23rd of June, 2021. The apartment in question is that of the artist Giacomo Balla, his place of residence for the last 20 years of his life up to 1958. The interior design of the property looks far less dynamic if applying the basic tenets of futurism as laid out in the manifesto by Marinetti. The geometric shapes, the splash of pastel colours share nothing of the excitement of movement or celebration of the machine, nor either the cleansing nature of war as championed by Marinetti in the manifesto but the apartment as a private space says everything about the joys of the artist's work as a futurist. It was Bala who remained loyal to the iconographic aspects of futurism, if not the initial machine-inspired idea long after others had abandoned them. The article discusses the apartment restoration project in the following terms, quoting from the curators Pietromacci and Dardi. On the fourth floor of an apartment building on Via Oslava in the Prati quarter of Rome, a small flat holds within it a world of colour, pools of crimson, shards of yellow, orbs of aquamarine home to the leading Italian futurist Giacomo Balla from 1929 until his death in 1958. Caesar Balla was his canvas and a showcase for his ideas of a total art in which creativity infiltrates every aspect of life. Reconstruct the universe by making it more joyful, Balla wrote in a 1915 manifesto. When he moved to Via Oslava, he began by decorating his own surroundings in vibrant patterns, walls, furniture, objects and all. 
In keeping with the wishes of Bala's family, the living space has been turned into a museum to both celebrate the artist's life and preserve the painting of the walls and various pieces of furniture, not only by Bala himself, but by his daughters Elika and Luci, up until 1993, when the last of the family to survive Elika died. In 2004, it became a national heritage site, but work on restoring it for the benefit of the visiting public did not start until 2019. It has been open to the public since the summer of this year, 2021, and is currently accessible as part of a retrospective of Bala's work at Rome's Maxi Museum. National Museum of 21st Century Arts Futurism An Overview Futurism fueled Italian fascism aesthetically. Its Russian variant inspired a workers' revolution and then ameliorated the early years of communism for an erstwhile bourgeois class that then had to behave itself in keeping with proletarian principles. Futurism was about capturing the movement of the machine in art at immeasurable, still more unimaginable levels of speed prior to the Industrial Revolution. It also concerned the violence implicit in the impact of industrialization on society and the manner of man needed to operate industrial machinery. There was, moreover, the wider application of machinery in relation to a possible pan-European war. For as long as all these things were thought of as essential elements needed to break with a moribund past, futurism served a political purpose. However, futurism has now become more than an addendum to the discourse around art history. It has become central to it in a way that the original futurists, Marinetti in particular, would have despised. We will look at the cultural setting of early Italian fascism in more detail presently based on what we understand so far about futurism. Futurism, War and Fascism, The Necessary Context when Marinetti wrote the Futurist Manifesto, there was a mood of nationalism in Italy, with the authorities making clear certain frustrations over outstanding verbal promises by Britain and France concerning territories of the Ottoman Empire. The Italian intelligentsia, no less Marinetti, largely concurred. There were grievances dating back to the Congress of Berlin, which was about settling the balance of power among the major European powers, Russia, Great Britain, France, Austro-Hungary, Italy and Germany. Russia also felt that Britain and France had reneged on agreements coming out of the Congress concerning a pan-Slavonic Balkans. The Balkan question was not to go away. 
both Italy and Russia had become excited by the possible spoils coming their way from the sick man of Europe, the Ottoman Empire. Both saw a groundswell of nationalism, both adopted on the artistic fringes the futurist movement with more ardour than any other country. The former maintained its nationalist stance post-World War I. The latter contorted similar sentiments in order to perpetuate communism in one country first, when the internationalist dimension to world revolution failed, with Britain maintaining a monarchy, France a republic, and Germany becoming a social democratic republic. If the magnitude of the First World War needs any more emphasis than it generally gets, we can say that the conflict, in fact, started in 1911 when Italy attacked Libya, then a part of the ailing Ottoman Empire. This was an act of war that was both a foreshadowing of the nationalism evident from the Axis powers in World War I and of the military nature of 20th century war generally, the perceived redundancy of cavalry traditionally the elite of army land forces, aerial reconnaissance and then attack from the air, not quite bombing yet, with the bombardier pilot removing the pin of the hand grenades with his teeth before dropping them from his Austrian-made Tauber monoplane. The First World War is generally well enough addressed academically as well as in podcasts and YouTube channels. However, Italy's part in this conflict requires looking at briefly. Italy remained neutral for roughly the first ten months of the war. Fearing sympathies with Germany, the Treaty of London of 1915 was conducted in secret in order to bring this country into the war on the Allied side, promising it territories of the already decrepit Austro-Hungary. As a result of the Treaty of London, Italy immediately declared war on the Habsburgs in Vienna, but delayed doing the same in relation to the main access power, Germany, whose vigour stood in stark contrast to the lameness of the German-speaking Austrians, the dominant force in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The resentment that the Italians caused in the corridors of power, Whitehall, the Elysee Palace, and later the US State Department, was carried over by these major powers into the Paris Peace Conference of 1919. The issue came to a head when three of the big four at this conference, US President Wilson, the Prime Ministers of France and Britain, Clemenceau and Lloyd George respectively, refused to fulfil the terms of the London Treaty to the fourth big player, the Italian Prime Minister Orlando whose reduced status at the conference and the diminishing of Italy as a major power played into the hands of the politically extreme right back in Rome. Orlando was a liberal on the political spectrum, 
after his fall from power in June 1919, none of his successors, variously from socialist and liberal factions within the political elite, would hold on to power for more than a full year until the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini took over the levers of state control in October 1922. He was a self-proclaimed intellectual with no credentials as a parliamentary politician. As a young man, he had fled to Switzerland, avoiding conscription, working manually, developing socialist ideas. On his return to Italy, he set about a career as a journalist and eventually found a voice as a radical thinker. His socialism and opposition to the intervention in Libya discussed earlier brought him to the editorship of Avanti, the main socialist newspaper in Italy. However, his support for the First World War split the socialist movement in Italy. Mussolini was expelled from the party and lost his position at Avanti. He volunteered to fight in the Great War, ostensibly for the sake of his country's honour. Discharged from the army, having been wounded, Mussolini returned full-time to journalism, although since 1914, following his work on Avanti, he had been proprietor of what was to be the essential organ of the fascist movement in Italy. This was the People's Italy. Here, the manifesto of the fascist struggle, or simply the fascist manifesto, was first published on June the 6th, 1919. It was co-authored by Marinetti and the national syndicalist Alcesti de Ambrose, much under the supervision of the paper's owner. Filippo Marinetti and Giacomo Balla also fought for their country's honour, a deed much easier to regard as a selfless act on both their parts than on that of the self-serving Mussolini. Yet of the two artists, only the writer was overtly political. The painter was much more interested in the commedia of life. We will come to this presently. Where Marinetti was proto-fascist, Vladimir Mayakovsky was revolutionary communist. Both firmly believed that only violence could bring about political and social change. In the case of Mayakovsky, we will come to this too. The Contradiction of a House Museum Celebrating a Futurist Artist the brevity of the last of the ten theses of the Futurist Manifesto makes it easily quotable. We want to demolish museums and libraries, fight morality, feminism, and all opportunist and utilitarian cowardice. The fact that so much effort has gone into preserving Bala's apartment for posterity as a museum somewhat goes against the grain of the manifesto, at least in part. That it has been preserved at all has not amounted to a work undertaken towards a futurist end. It was merely an act of curatorship 
highlighting art undertaken in the name of futurism. Anyone attending a motorsport event with levels of speed and driving manoeuvres on display that would not be permitted on the public highway would be acting more in keeping with the spirit of futurist ideals than a visitor to Bala's place of residence would. House museums are not uncommon in Moscow, and the idea of having an artist's domestic arrangements put on public display often yield insights into their art. For instance, Vladimir Mayakovsky's one-room living space in communal quarters, which have been reconstructed in the museum that bears his name in Moscow. It, at least spatially, represents his reduced circumstances by 1930. Although it gives little indication of how he lived, we will turn to his life in more detail later, it does seem apposite as far as being a mock-up of the place of his death, his probable suicide. Firstly, because those who claim he was murdered, based on inconsistencies in eyewitness accounts and police records, cannot possibly further claim it as a crime scene, and so treat it as a shrine. And secondly, because it stands as a kind of set, it presupposes still or motion photography and theatrical performance. In other words, the multimedia facet of Russian futurism, and even more so the constructivist and suprematist movements that came out of futurism. The former, with its focus on the purely material, endured beyond the revolution. The latter, with a greater accent on the metaphysical, did not. The actual exhibits, manuscripts, artwork, newspaper clippings and the like in the rest of the Mayakovsky State Museum seem dull and uninspiring by comparison, stolid and respectable in the way of things exhibited in the mid-nineteenth century, stolid and in keeping with party strictures, in the way of things exhibited in the mid-twentieth century. Its relevance to present-day creatives. Modern smartphone cameras have all manner of devices to recreate the iconography of movement established by futurist painters. Moreover, the concept-based multimedia nature of art in the 21st century, with installations rather than room-on-room -room hangings of traditional painterly works of art, is part of its legacy. The Turner Prize in the UK owes much to the multimedia exhortations of the Futurist Manifesto, although the very name of the award, after J. M. W. Turner, perhaps Britain's greatest painter, suggests avant-garde continuity rather than revolutionary change. The four joint winners in 2019 were Lawrence Abu Hamdan, 
who works with sound, Helen Kamok, whose installations involve many of the plastic arts as well as writing and the spoken word, Tai Shani uses film and photography along with ancient texts in relation to Freudian ideas of sexuality to explore questions of identity. And fourthly, Oscar Murillo, whose installation work is collaborative and specific to the location in which it occurs. He is also a painter who reads extensively about the Western art tradition, so avoiding a position of ignorance when subverting it in his work on post-colonial migration and trade. The prize was cancelled in 2020 due to the COVID pandemic. Instead, 10 artists were given bursaries, one of whom is Orit Ashri, an Israeli-born artist. Their performance piece of 2014, The World is Flooding, was based on Mystery Booth a Mayakovsky play written in 1921 for the fourth anniversary of the 1917 revolution. Although about 21st century issues, its non-academic approach to performance with volunteer participants rather than trained actors, sometimes reading their lines from scraps of paper, sometimes fluffing them from faulty memory, here speaking into a microphone with some awareness of technique, there speaking far too close to it, all this is very much in keeping with the inclusive intentions of the artist. Now let's look in detail at Marinetti's manifesto in the run of artistic development in the first quarter of the 20th century without further delay. Etienne Yule Marais and Edward Meyerbridge If we take Bala's perhaps most popular painting, Dynamism of a Dog on a Leash, from 1912, we can see the influence of chronophotography, which was a kind of proto-kinematography, or cinematography minus the gate, that allows for the persistence of vision between frames as projected out, giving the impression of uninterrupted motion. Chronophotography was invented in 1878 by Edward Meyerbridge in relation to the movement of a horse. As an end product, it amounted to no more than a postcard with 12 inset images of the equine gait, or stride, its full cycle in incremental stages. These frames were captured by 24 cameras placed alongside a racetrack, the horse triggering the exposure as it comes into view of the lens in each case. With the development of the motion picture camera in 1895, Maybridge's images could more easily be related as a seamless repetitive movement. 
However, another scientist, Etienne Hugh Marais, whom Meyerbridge met and inspired, wanted to capture movement too rapid for the human eye to discern. He invented a kind of gun that could shoot, in a filmic sense, the moving image laterally across a two-dimensional background. These were usually of creatures like cats and chickens, also racehorses following Meyerbridge's example. In addition to equine athletes, he also captured human runners and jumpers. Much of this experimentation was done the year before the emergence of the Lumiere camera projector. By the time Bala came to paint The Dynamism of a Dog on a Leash in 1912, cinema had already established itself as a popular form of entertainment, in turn influencing the plastic arts. However, it was not cinema that informed Bala's efforts in painting dynamism in two dimensions. It was Marais' blurred images from nearly a generation earlier, showing the trajectory of a high jumper, revealing much about the body posture and necessary muscular contortions the high jumper has to assume that could not be seen by the naked eye. Despite this technology being less sensational for the ordinary viewer than motion pictures, it was Marais' work that underpinned iconographically the representation of dynamism in Bala's painting of the dog and its walker. The body and head of the one and the coat and bottom half of the other are rendered figuratively pretty much impressionistically in black. But the blurring of the legs, human and canine, and the swishing of the dog chain show clearly the influence of Murray. We will come to the Cubist influence presently. Cubism Murray and Meyerbridge were forced by the primitive equipment at their disposal to treat living things, animals, as moving shadows, as it were, flattening them against a plain backdrop in order to capture their motion. Cubism offered an alternative way of representing figures and objects. Following Impressionism and the use of colour, reminding the viewer that painting can be more than just the rendering of a classical narrative, there was a move away from the academic painting of the Paris Salon and its prescriptions as to good and bad taste. Cubism was not a return to perspective and exact foreshortenings in relation to the vanishing point for the sake of narrative. Rather, it was a way of painting that came about around 1907-1908. It was practiced by the artists Pablo Picasso and Georges Braque both wanted to incorporate the experience of the viewer who embodied the moving eye. 
Before Picasso and Braque, there were suggestions of a more three-dimensional way of representing reality on a two-dimensional support, that is to say canvas, but not always just the canvas, of course. This was found in the paintings of Paul Cézanne during the post-Impressionist period. In, for example, his still life with apples and a pot of primroses, the table is shown as tilting or raked towards the viewer in order to better represent the apples. However, according to the laws of physics, the fruit would simply roll off the table. Another influence was African masks, something that Picasso incorporated into his painting of 1907, La Zoom de Masks in tribal cultures expressed greater interest in the spiritual essence of something than in its outer appearance. For example, the representation of a face of a hunter-gatherer would carry outlines of the animal that was hunted. Thus, the symbiotic relationship between hunter and hunted was acknowledged. The Cubist works of Picasso and Brach juxtaposed different views of objects or figures within the same picture. To the uninitiated, their pictures appeared fragmented. To others more familiar with still and motion photography as technologies, the apparent level of abstraction was justified in order to show multiple perspectives presupposing movement, as well as time, the time it takes the moving eye to discern movement. This prepared the ground for the development of futurism. Russian futurism came about as a result of the Moscow-based literary group Gilea publishing a slim volume of prose and poetry called A Slap in the Face of Public Taste. The group had been around since 1910, instigated by the painter David Berliuk and his brothers. Others followed, more notably Vladimir Mayakovsky, a year later. The Russian Futurist Manifesto is essentially a preface to this volume. It is similar to Marinetti's manifesto in that it demands the rejection of established literature for the sake of new art forms as multimedia. The group also included artists Mikhail Larinov, Natalia Goncharova, Olga Rosanova, and most notably Kazimir Malevich. Collectively, they were the Russian Cubo-Futurists, no mere borrowers from Italian Futurism. In fact, on a promotional lecture tour to Russia in 1914, Marinetti was snubbed by those he took to be his artistic peers. 
where Italian futurism exalted the machine, Russian futurism was more about the folk traditions of the country. In this, there was much more of a spiritual dimension to futurism in Russia, which tied it more closely to French cubism than to Italian futurism. If we remember the influence of masks on Picasso in the period immediately preceding his cubist experiments with Braque. Part of the Gelea movement only briefly, Melevich survived the period of futurism as it morphed into constructivism, which he despised and dismissed as sterile in relation to the human spirit, focusing solely as it did on geometric forms denuded of any metaphysical aspect. He maintained an affinity with suprematism which brought him international fame and which the Soviet authorities tolerated under sufferance for most of the rest of his life. He died in 1935 before the more psychotically disturbed of the Moscow show trials began. If Italian and Russian futurism have any intersection, it cannot be found in similarities between, on the one hand, the Leninist period and the early Stalinist period in Russia, and, on the other, the Mussolini regime in Rome prior to 1938 but rather in the eventuality of Stalinism and Nazism as the ultimate subordination of the human to the machine, now simply the machinery of state and the leader's will as to its operation. Totalitarianism Coming back to the question of futurism and its surviving reputation in conclusion without any delay. In direct contradiction to the manifesto's fascist outlook, futurism has now become a bourgeois staple of the conservative art scene. Although now largely understood in relation to painting and sculpture, the manifesto discussed prose and poetry at this point it could be argued that Marinetti was a failed writer and that the Futurist Manifesto was something of a publicity stunt. He had had little success with the drama for the stage performed in Paris the same year as the Manifesto appeared, and similarly he was disappointed with an attempt at writing a novel a year later. He enjoyed considerably more success with Zhang Tum Tum, a sound poem based on his experience of reporting on the Italo-Turkish war for a French newspaper. This was the intervention in Libya already discussed. The very title suggests the onomatopoeic nature of the material, something over and above semantic meaning. From the visual aspect, it might also be described as concrete poetry in that the graphemes and their typographical representation were more important in conveying meaning than verbal utterance. 
At about the same time in Russia, a number of artists, including Vladimir Mayakovsky, were mounting their own assault on the artistic conventions of the day, producing something similar to Marinetti's Zang Tum Tum with typographic experiments and nonce sound patterns. This was Pashochina Obshesvenamu Vkosu, a slap in the face of public taste. Mayakovsky remains the poet of the Russian Revolution, not only due to his pre-revolutionary involvement with futurism, his Byronesque lifestyle, his contribution to the plastic arts, particularly film and graphic design, his poetry, almost Pushkin-like as far as its impact on the Russian language was concerned, but also because of the love poetry he wrote for his muse, Lilia Brick, when an already disillusioned revolutionary. The reputation of this later material was promoted by lackey critics to suit Stalinist purposes after the writer's suicide in 1930. Despite Marinetti's efforts as a poet and writer of prose, it was the painters Amberto Boccioni and Giacomo Balla who gave relatively more impetus to the futurist movement in Italy, and their work has better survived. For example, Three Women, 1909-1910 by Boccioni, the figurative content of which has little to do with the dynamism of futurism as expressed by Marinetti. Street light painted by Balla in 1909, but dated a year later, is far less figurative apart from the ease with which the lamp itself can be made out. However, both works point forward towards futurism and backwards to the Italian divisionist painters. The landscapes and portraits of Emilio Longoni and the epic pictures of Giuseppe Palizza da Volpiedo, particularly the fourth estate which became the signature image of Bernardo Bertolucci's film masterpiece 1900, made in 1976. The starting point of divisionist painting may be found in the optical and chromatic ideas developed by scientists, especially by the French chemist Michel-Eugène Chevrel. The sense of colour happens upon the retina as a hue not recognisable on close inspection of the disparate colours in the form of the tiny dots or points applied to the support or canvas. The unity of colour one sees is an amalgam of these colours in these dots or points. Futurism has helped maintain a certain interest in this earlier divisionist movement. However, as a style, generally it is more firmly associated with the neo-impressionist French painter Georges Seurat. 
As mentioned earlier, modern gadgets, especially smartphone apps, allow us to recreate the iconography of movement established by futurist painters. Experiments in sounds and typographies have fared less well. The stream of consciousness poetry of Gertrude Stein, for example, and its repetitions, which was influenced by Cubism as much as by Futurism, did not last beyond the author's lifetime. Later experiments, such as James Joyce's Finnegan's Wake, remain largely unreadable. The works of Samuel Beckett in French and English remain on the fringes of stage performance, not so much due to a lack of popularity, but more so because none on its own is long enough to constitute an evening in the theatre. Futurism was able to reinvent a kind of visual grammar in terms of iconographic representation for the looker-viewer, where, for the reader, the written word has generally remained wedded to certain systematic conventions, that is to say, not always to the Greco-Latinate-Hebraic traditions of grammar and syntax. Only in early Soviet Russia was Futurism both a popular literary movement as well as one involving the plastic arts, principally painting and sculpture. Yet... Once the civil war in Russia was decisively a matter of red victory, the revolutionary ingredient in futurism that had sustained it hitherto was no longer of any use to the Soviet authorities. The one area where it did have something of an afterlife was in the theatrical innovations of Vsevolod Meyerhold and his theories of movement biomechanics as needing to be in plastic unity with stage scenery. Vladimir Mayakovsky was a frequent collaborator. The play Klopp the Bug, with music by Shostakovich, was one of the highlights of this early Soviet period, artistically sometimes regarded as a silver age following the golden age of Pushkin a century earlier. However, by the time of an official state policy of socialist realism in 1929, there was little of the futurist agenda being practiced in Russia that could avoid being dismissed as decadent. Many of the surviving Cubo-futurists, having moved on artistically, were now living abroad.